on his way. Devil is on his way. Devil is on his way, motherfucker. The devil gonna make you pay. Fall to your knees. Devil is on his way. Fall to your knees. Devil gonna make you pay. Mountain Murders is an Appalachian true crime podcast. Listener discretion is advised. The show contains graphic language and depictions of violence. It may not be suitable for all audiences. We say fuck a lot. Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I am her sidekick, Dylan. How you doing today, Dylan? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I'm ready to talk about true crime. And I wonder how them peoples out there is doing. I know. I hope they're doing well. Hanging on, hanging in there, coping. Hanging out with your wang out. Exactly. Jamming out with your clam out. Ooh. That, okay. I I detect a little bit of, like, massage. That was very misogynist. As soon as the ooh came out, I was like, that was a dick move. That was a dick move. So. You act like people want you to rock out with your cock out. And trust me, nobody wants to see that, okay? (laughs) Nobody wants to see my wang? No, I don't. No, and as soon as you did the female equivalent to that, I said, ooh. So I guess I fucked that up. I thought you liked that. I do. I love it. I love clams. I like that clam. You're weird. Okay, well, I'm sorry about that, ladies out there. Yeah, okay. I was a dick for a douche for about two seconds. You are. I'm back now. Okay. To my understanding and fun-loving ways. Yeah, you better get back into your understanding submissive way. Yeah, I won't get any clam chowder for a very long time if I keep it up. Okay, enough. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sorry about that. Let's give a shout out to our new patron, Melissa. She signed up at patreon.com backslash Mountain Murders Podcast and is sponsoring this episode. And you know what that means. Hey, Melissa. Hey, girl. We appreciate you. We love it. And we love you that you get the opportunity to dig through all that great stuff over there on patreon you, when you say stuff do you mean content yeah that stuff we have a lot of ep- like just patreon exclusive episodes uploaded there dude we just did like a full length uh big long nice episode because we love talking to the patrons Wasn't so that much 46 minute episode on the disappearance of Brittany drexel and we couldn't stop that happened in myrtle beach south carolina it's a pretty well known case we talked about it on Patreon, so if you want to catch that episode, $3 a month is going to access a lot of bonus content. Yep. Head over there, get entertained more. You can now reach us by phone, Dylan. Yes, and you can do this for free. Leave a voicemail, and we may play it on a future episode. I'm going to give you the number. Write it down. It's 828-571-0092. Or you can reach us at mountainmurderspodcast at gmail.com. Oh, I can't wait to hear some of our wonderful listeners, what they have to say. Or the people who are like, fuck you guys. Like, hey, hey, <laughs> is it is this thing on? Yeah, I want to tell you that I think you're stupid and I don't like your show. Yeah. I don't, I listen, like, I don't like your talk show. I listened to two minutes of your talk show and I could tell it wasn't for me. Those people? Yeah, those people. I want to hear it because we're definitely going to play those voicemails. Yeah, we fucking should. <laughs> In true crime news, the Evelyn Boswell case out of Tennessee. What is going on with this that This is a case I was following really closely back in February and March. April, there wasn't a lot of info that came out, and now we're into May. And it seems like they may have their shit together over there. Could be an indictment this month. Well, I mean, it, 
for in defense of investigators, have been working on this for quite a while. It was a, like waiting on the autopsy. It was a tricky case. You got a gray area of you know what what are the laws if you can't produce your child when you're ordered to by authorities. You know, I mean, there's not a lot of you know concrete laws on stuff like that. We learned. Talking well, I about know, this. but they need to get the shit together. Well, they're doing it. it sounds like. Well, the DA is taking the case to a grand jury. There you go. Indictment against the mother, Megan Boswell, on murder charges. It's been a long time coming. This poor baby needs some resolution. Megan Boswell is currently in jail. She was arrested basically for lying to police and investigators. Yeah, they just want to get their story multiple times. Get their hands on her. She is supposed to go before a judge. I think it's next week for like a bond hearing. But. I don't know. Hopefully this indictment's going to stick and she's going to be awaiting trial for a while. Yeah, I'm not sure. But if she's indicted with new charges, that may come come with higher bonds and such. So I'm not sure how that works, but that's a big deal. That's where it starts at the grand jury. Bitch needs to rot in prison. She needs to pay for what happened to that little one. Also, the Lori Vallow case out of Idaho just keeps getting wackier and wackier. Man, I tell you, there's going to be books written about this stuff. Another mother probably, allegedly, murdered her children. Big news. Children plus. Yeah. So I heard a podcast discuss that she may be involved in her sister's mysterious death back in 1998. There's been a lot of mysterious deaths around her. Husband, brother, her new husband's wife, her sister, her kids. Some neighbors she wasn't connected to their deaths. Who knows? That's conjecture on my part, but it wouldn't surprise me. Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yes. That's one of the Hoffa theories was um, that, she, <laughs> that she killed him because she thought he was a, had turned into a zombie because that's what happens when the devil gets you or something. Well, those are a few cases to keep you busy reading up the next few days if you want to know more about Megan Boswell, Evelyn Boswell, or the Lori Vallow case. I mean, that's... You can get down a rabbit hole with that one. There are so many branches to that case that head off into crazy town. It is one of the strangest true crime cases I believe I've ever heard. It's like six true crime cases mashed together. Like all these, you know, you got the cult, death cult. You got, I mean, you sheesh, you got spouse murder, spousal murder, whatever. I forget what that's called. And you got missing kids, unfortunately. That's the saddest part, I think. Yeah, I mean, what the hell? Definitely something to check out. Are you ready, Dylan? I'm ready to check out the story you have for us to date. Episode 85. Oh, my gosh. We're taking a short drive away to Hendersonville, North Carolina. Not too far from where we live. I know where that's at. If you're not familiar with Hendersonville, it's located south of Asheville, North Carolina, and is known for its sweeping views of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Today, the population is roughly around 14,000, but in 1966, when our case takes place, it was much smaller, probably about 5,000 people lived there. Yeah, it's uh, just a little, little town. That might have been big for this area, maybe. Its nickname is the City of Four Seasons, and the town has a quaint historic Main Street area, boasts the North Carolina Apple Festival, which draws about 50,000 visitors every season, and poet Carl Sandburg lived in nearby Flat Rock, North Carolina. If you ever take a trip to Hendersonville or the Flat Rock area, you can actually tour 
Carl Sandburg's home and estate. He has a petting zoo. And guess what they have, Dylan? Baby goats. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, every time I go, I'm in heaven. I remember going to the Carl Sandburg house when I was in school. Yeah, we took a field trip there, I think, in like the sixth grade or something. And it was pretty cool. It is very neat. Flat Rock also has the former Flat Rock Playhouse, which was a staple in regional theater. A lot of people know Flat Rock because of the Playhouse. In 2014, Sierra Nevada opened up a brewery in Henderson County, cashing in on the craft beer craze, which has gulped up our region. See what I did there? Oh, my goodness gracious. Now, Hendersonville is primarily known as a retirement community. There's a lot of subdivisions and golf courses in that area. My favorite spot, and no, they're not a sponsor, is McFarland's Bakery. Oh, my God. McFarland's is heaven on earth. They have these old-fashioned chocolate chewy cookies. It is so good. The eclairs are to die for. That Everything in that place is to die for, I think. Like, fresh... Family-owned bakery, everything, you know, made from scratch. These, like, recipes that you know have probably been passed down for generations. See, we're, a lot of people are like, we're never going to go this place she's describing. It sounds so great. Oh, my God, it's so good. But also, Kelly McGillis, the actress, you probably know her from Top Gun. She resides in Henderson County. Oh, really? Buffalo Bob Smith, the host of the TV show Howdy Doody, lived in the area. And it's also famous for the McGuire twins. Do you know about them? Um, no, I don't think so. Well, they were noted as the world's heaviest twins. I believe they were in like the Guinness Book of World Records and whatnot. Um, they were born in Hendersonville, and you probably would know them from greeting cards, calendars, especially like in the 70s and early 80s. Really? Because they were these two really, really heavy guys, and they're twins. And they would have photos of them, like, on little tiny motorcycles and that kind of... And it was like a greeting card. Like, hope your birthday's big or double the fun. Just kind of cheesy stuff like that. But they're really famous. So, if you have a chance, go Google the McGuire Twins. I'm gonna. Henderson County, Hendersonville, North Carolina, is where our story today is going to take place. On an otherwise uneventful Friday, July 22nd, 1966, two workmen named Charles Hill and Larry Shipman were in a grassy area near Lake Summit when they saw something. The area was near a dirt road, a spot where people dumped trash. So Shipman initially thought it was like a mannequin or a window dummy, as he called it. Yeah, I think that's common when people see bodies. As he approached, the undeniable smell of three rotting bodies hit him. They were arranged in a semicircle, two men both fully dressed and a woman partially nude. So this was no mannequin or window dummy. This was a crime scene. The temperature had hovered in the mid-80s that whole week in July. The site was at the end of a dirt road known as Lake Summit Road North, not far from the dam by Green River. Oh, not the famous Green River. I always think about that when I cross the, the Green, Green River Lake out west with, uh, what was his name, Gary? Ridgeway. Yeah. He killed a lot of people. Yeah, the Green River... Leaves like Henderson County and heads down into South Carolina. Yeah. There's a lot of tubing that happens in the Green River. I've actually never been, but I've heard it's a fun tubing spot. Yeah, that's what I heard. Just two days earlier on Wednesday, a missing persons report had been officially filed with the Hendersonville Police Department. Charles Glass, 36, was manager of a record store called Tempo. 
and this store is owned by 43-year-old Vernon Shipman. Glass had not been seen since Sunday. Harley Shipman, Vernon's father, was pretty distraught because his son was missing. He filed the report and then showed up at the newspaper office demanding that they do something to get the word out about his son. Well, yeah. I mean, he's very worried. Who wouldn't be? So we've got Vernon Shipman missing and also Charles Glass, who manages Vernon's record store, hasn't been seen for several days. Store's been closed. And yeah, that store was a pretty big staple of the town back then, it seems like. Well, it was unusual for the store to be closed, particularly in the summer months when teenagers were out of school. During the summer months, kids were filing into the shops downtown searching for records. Tempo was a hot spot where kids could buy rock and roll, Motown, R&B, and jazz music. If you were a young person living in Hendersonville, you know, during the time 1966, Tempo was the place to scroll through 45s. You could find Bob Dylan, The Beatles. I mean, this was at the height of the British invasion, and this was when music was like everything. Yeah, it was such a big deal back then, it seems like. It really was, and I think it's so cool to remember a time when going to a record store, going to a music store, was a big deal. Yeah. and We're old enough to remember that. It just has such a different feel than the way people consume media nowadays. I mean, now you just click, buy a song, 99 cents on the internet, download to your phone. You create a playlist on like Spotify or something. Oh, you get so much music now. You get so much more, but I think we lose something because of the experiences change. Like you remember going to rent a movie or a DVD and you're like, you don't know if it's going to be there. You just heard it came out and then it's boom, it's there. It's like you forget it's like gambling or something. You get a rush from finding something really cool and get, you know, putting your hands on it. Well, think about going CD shopping back in like the 90s and you might go looking for a certain album, but you start combing through different CDs, yep. tapes, and you might catch an interest in something just based on like the cool cover art. Yeah, cover art was seem uh was a lot bigger deal then because it really could draw you in. Yeah, I mean it's just it was such a different time. Yeah, and we're sounding like old fuddy duds. Well now. we are. But it was so cool and I think a lot of people out there can relate and also see how there's a lot missing. I tell my kids, y'all get the one song and like it. You don't get the album experience from finding a good C D that literally put on play the whole thing. Warren, remember when albums and CDs and whatever, an artist might create an entire album that like told a story? Yeah, exactly. Like and set a mood. Think of Bruce Springsteen's, um, is it Kansas, the album? that is like It just tells a whole story. Anyway, I think there's something that's lost in today's quick consume music industry. It is. and But back then, tempo was a spot to be if you're young, looking for some music. Oh, well, not only was Tempo a hip spot to buy music, but it was a store where blacks could go shopping. Which was a big deal. This was during integration, which was incredibly slow moving into the mountains of western North Carolina. It was a small store with records down both sides and like in the middle of the aisle. Yeah. It's pretty typical like layout for a record store if you've ever been. To just the regular, like the staple vinyl shop kind of thing, you know? Yeah, you got to get in there and dig around. Shipman owned the store, but he held down a full-time job working at the North Carolina Employment Security Commission. He, he 
had also not shown up the whole week, which was incredibly unusual. The only credible and last sighting of the pair had been on Sunday when a part-time store employee named Calvin Hunt Jr. had seen the pair driving in Shipman's 1962 Ford Fairlane. Hunt claimed he had seen the two men in the front seat and two others in the back seat of the car. Others in town would report having seen the men driving as well on that Sunday afternoon, with some folks saying they'd seen a man and a woman in the back of the fair lane. Now that's very interesting there. People who knew Vernon Shipman said he was a gentle man with a quiet charm. He was a snazzy dresser who held fancy dinner parties and loved music. He was an impeccable employee at the unemployment office going out of his way to help people. Known as a wonderful cook, his attention to detail could be experienced if you were lucky enough to be invited over for one of his elaborate dinners. On Sundays, he was known to prepare a large meal, sometimes with the upwards of 20 guests surrounding his table. He lived with his father, Harley. Now, Harley and his wife were well-known in the town. They were good, church-going people. Harley was a mechanic at the Ford dealership. Now, the Shipman family in general was well-liked, and business owners in town pillars of the community, just good working people. Yeah, it sounds like the kind of people everybody knows, but they're, they're good, good-hearted people as well, and just sound like great, um, great people to be around. Vernon had reportedly always been very close to his mother growing up, even favoring her family a bit more. As a teen, Vernon loved music. He amassed a large record collection he had been drafted into the Army after graduating in 1944, but was discharged less than a year later, and nobody really knows why or ever got any kind of answer on that. So he didn't do his whole four years or whatever? No, just about a year. And although it was no secret that Shipman was a homosexual, he had spent some time after graduating from business school in Washington, D.C. Now, it was sometime in the early 1950s that he met Charles Glass. The two were a couple— and at one point, they opened a cafe together, which ended up failing. Eventually, the pair would open up Tempo. It was a perfect partnership. Vernon was a music lover, and Glass was able to work and hold down the store through the week. Yeah, it's the two components you need for a good record store. You need somebody with a passion in there and somebody good with the business side. Glass was a flamboyant showman. He was the center of attention and a quirky bird in his small town. He was really into music as well. His entire family had been really musical. His grandfather played in orchestras, and his uncle owned an instrument store in Asheville. From an early age, he had been a singer. Almost everyone in the family played an instrument. He lived with his mother after his parents' divorce. His singing career had some high notes. He opened for the R&B jazz singer Little Esther. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of her. He had lived in Baltimore where he had made some recordings and he spent time in the Army during World War II, but eventually ended up in Hendersonville. He was a big fan of quote unquote black music. He loved the R&B. He loved jazz, the blues, and he had a lot of black friends, which was noted at the time. I just call that good music. Glass and Shipman had also tried to make records together during the 1950s. Not only did Glass work at the record store, but he also held down a night job at hotels in downtown Asheville. He also had an advice column. Really? In a local news publication called the WNC Tribune. He called himself Aunt Klondike. That's funny. And it was kind of loosely based on, like, um, you know, Dear Abby or... 
you know, that kind of thing. And he would give advice and talk about etiquette and manners. Yeah, I, I to this day, I will read Dear Abby articles if I come across them. I don't know why. Well, they're fun. Yeah. Another interesting thing about Glass is his interest in the dark arts. Oh, no. He wrote a book called Tales of Black Magic and Voodoo, which he sold from the record shop. Oh, wow. I bet I got people talking. He also made elixirs, charms, and hexes. He'd sell those to members of the black community out of the back of the record store. He'd write up spells and offer curses. Yeah, and he wrote that under a pen name. He did. Yeah, and I thought he's he's a very clever guy. What was it? How would you say that? You're the Frenchman. Charles Lever. Lever. And that is a French word for glass. Charles Lever. He's so smart. With the town reeling from news of the gruesome murders, another mystery was swirling. Who was the woman? Remember, we've got Charles Vernon and also a third body of a woman. Yeah. Well, her name was Louise Shoemate. Shoemate was born in 1904, but her license listed a birth date of 1911. I don't know if that was intentional or accidental. Oh, yeah. Well, you know how women, you can't ask women about their age. Everyone thought she looked much younger than she actually was. Born in Asheville, she spent her young years traveling around. In the 1930s, she was married for about six years, and she ended up in places like Massachusetts, Florida, Texas, but ultimately returned to Asheville after her divorce. She resided in an apartment in Asheville, and she'd been employed at Taylor Instrument Company. She was incredibly private. Yeah, it almost seemed like a recluse. None of her co-workers or family knew details of her personal life. She wouldn't even give her address to people. Shumay's apartment was sparse. She had almost no personal items, and she was known to carry a camera and enjoy photography, but she didn't have any photographs in her apartment. Well, that's odd. Family members would talk about an almost paranoid existence. She insisted she park under a large light in the parking lot of her job. She would wear sunglasses constantly. In public, she'd pretend she didn't know people that she'd known for years. Which, I mean, come on, I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh God, hurry up. I duck down behind things. Yeah. I hope they didn't see me. In her earlier years, Shoemate had worked as a buyer for Neiman Marcus in Dallas. But in Asheville... She was primarily known just for wearing pants, but they all came from very expensive, exclusive clothing stores. She was what we would call now a fashionista. Oh, really? She had trained as a nurse, but never used her degree. Others knew Louise as a party goer, but she rarely attended family events. When word came out that she was like going to parties and kind of living it up, her family was like, what? Because she never goes to family. It's almost like she had this double life. Well, it seems like she doesn't really care for her family, maybe. During the 1940s, Louise had enjoyed hanging around dances, meeting soldiers and sailors with her girlfriends. But in Asheville, she seemed to be living a solitary life in her apartment. Neighbors never saw visitors, nor did she ever have any visitors, overnight guests, anything like that. Well, uh, she, everybody, she does all this so consistently that everybody notices you know, these kind of quirky things about her. At the time of the murders, Glass was using crutches and had a boot on his foot. He had an accident in 1965, about seven months before his death. He had broken his leg after falling at a nightclub in Asheville. 
Where Man. to party at? He must have been up on the bar or something. Spinning on the pole, twerking upside down. Hey, guy. hey, guy. hey girls. He had to undergo surgeries because the leg had not healed properly. These three seem like quite the characters in their own right, if you think about it. So who'd want to murder this trio of very unique individuals? Yeah, they were. Yeah, they, they, they all three are characters, for sure. We're living in the age of podcasting, which also means the age of podcast networks with large back catalogs, long-running series, limited programming, and even cross-network collaborations. How are publishers supposed to keep this all organized? With Spreaker, of course. Spreaker's customizable publisher plan lets you organize your content exactly how you want it and gives you enough pod tech tools to monetize the largest back catalogs. If you're into premium offerings for subscribers, check out Spreaker's customized RSS feeds to upload and schedule exclusive content with ease. Or use our campaign manager to manage different campaigns from one central platform. Once your podcast business gets big enough, you can even add multiple networks to one account and collaborators assigned to each one. That helps keep the true crime series away from the comedy podcasts and make sure you get the advertisements that will resonate the most with your listeners. So let's move from the age of podcasting to the age of the podcast network with Spreaker. Head to Spreaker.com to learn more. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com. Friday, July 15th had been a typical workday for Louise. She ordered a tire on Saturday saying she was planning a trip. Vernon and Charles were at the record store on Saturday working together. Vernon had been invited to a dinner on Sunday relating to business, but Charles wasn't invited and some people noted that Charles was upset. Because he wanted, yeah, he's kind of like... He felt slighted. Yeah, left out. Vernon had breakfast on Sunday with his father, which was very typical. Hardly left around 2 p.m., which was the last time he'd see his son. Charles and Vernon went to a restaurant around 3 p.m. in Mountain Home, North Carolina, which is just like a couple minutes outside of Hendersonville. Yeah, that's a little bit, that's a little back towards Asheville. The couple then stopped off to visit a friend who owned an antique shop. Louise was last seen leaving her apartment around 4 p.m. A phone call was placed to Shipman's house around 5.30. The caller stating later that Glass sounded drunk when he answered the phone. Oh, so it sounds like he's kind of been loafing around all day with his buddy. Vernon missed dinner plans. Remember, he was supposed to go to a dinner. And another man saw the couple in the Fort Fairlane with a man and a woman around 6 p.m. And as I mentioned before, Calvin, the store employee, saw the Ford driving around about 6.30 on Little River Road. He knew Vernon had a dinner plan for that evening and thought it was kind of odd to see him driving around town. Yeah, because um, he does such elaborate, big, elaborate meals. You know, it takes preparation time and such. Well, I don't think he was actually cooking that evening. He had, a, like, a plan, and it was like a business dinner oh, on that Sunday. I'm sorry. And remember, Charles was like a little tiffed that he didn't get to go. Oh, okay. But they'd been talking about it on Saturday. Okay. So that's how Calvin knew, like, hey, he was supposed to be going to some kind of business dinner tonight. Harley noted that his son had left a jacket and tie on his bed when Harley returned around 8.30 p.m. And he thought it was weird because his son never left clothes, like, in his room. You know, Vernon was really good about everything stayed in Vernon's room. He was really neat and tidy with his clothes. So his dad thought it was kind of unusual that he had left these items in his room. Yeah, that would stand out to you. The bodies were discovered in a semicircle position. When found, the victims had likely been dead for about six days. 
during a week of July heat and rainstorms. The decomposition was so bad that Louise initially could not be identified by relatives. Small pieces of skull were found lying on the grounds. Fluid had leaked all around the bodies. So they're in a very advanced stage of decomposition. Very quick, you know, that kind. That's the, I guess, perfect might not be the right word, but prime condition for decomposition. All three victims had died from blunt force trauma to the head. Their skulls were fractured from what would have been some kind of heavy object. Shipman was hit on the right side. Louise and Charles were hit on the left side. And although initially police did not believe that Louise was raped, and this is pretty graphic, a yes. bumper jack was found inserted into her vagina. Um, that's just horrible. Now, can you? So you you come upon this scene as the poor, unfortunate person who uh, discovered this, and I mean, just could you imagine the visuals of this scene you're describing? I'm sure that would haunt you for the rest of your days. Well, and you had mentioned something about murderers who penetrate bodies with objects. Yeah, I dug just barely into that subject because that just struck me. Because I think that definitely says something about the killer, no matter what circumstances or anything. And as you mentioned, I think it might be about power. Yeah, we were kind of talking before we got started with this. And I think it's about power and also just humiliating that Humiliation. person. Yes, and also they seem to be posed, right, in like yes. a semicircle, and killers that go through any effort at all to place the bodies and stuff, a lot of times they do it to either throw investigators off and or just mess with them, but sometimes it means it means a whole lot. It's a, a significant symbol, or you know, the whole posing means a lot to the killer himself. But what? You had discovered in some of your research was that when they find victims who've been penetrated sexually with an object, that sometimes is like a lust killing? Uh, yeah, and it's like no penetration with the penis or normal sexual contact of any type, but then the object instead. And yes, that's a lot of times it was saying that they are lust murderers or they have this um like hang up to where they can't you know, do it in a normal way so, you know, they revert or they end up doing things like with the objects. So, like, perhaps if that person might have sexual shortcomings, if you will. Yes. That they would take it out on the victim. Yes, something like that. Gotcha. I mean, that makes sense. Charles and Louise had puncture wounds on their bodies, mostly shallow, but Louise had one that penetrated down to her breastbone. Her body had stab wounds on her breasts, breastbone, and abdomen, totaling 13 wounds. Charles had 21 total punctures on his body, mostly on his neck and chest. Vernon had no puncture wounds. How does one person control these three people? That's very weird, too. The stab wounds on Louise were before she died. She had a broken arm and shoulder indicating defensive wounds. She had definitely struggled and tried to fight off the attacker. Her thighs were badly bruised. And of course, in 1966, there were no rape kits. We really don't know for certain if she was beaten that badly or if those marks were the result of an extremely violent sexual assault. Right. I mean, they were literally like, we don't. It doesn't look like she's been sexually assaulted. You know what I mean? I mean, that's what they're working with in 66. 
Items found at the crime scene included Louise's glasses, Vernon's wallet, but no cash inside, Charles' wallet, and all three had watches. Louise had a change purse. A whiskey bottle was placed on Louise's neck. Charles' crutches were placed in an X pattern across his body. And Vernon had a piece of iron scrap sitting, like, on his neck. Yeah, see, that's intentional, obviously, and the different objects like that. And investigators are going to be baffled by this because they don't know, like, is this just someone kind of fucking with us? Or is this, is there a reason behind this? Does this represent something? Yeah, does this mean something to the killer? I mean, people initially were talking about how they thought this was some sort of, like, satanic ritual killing or something like with the semicircle and the way they were positioned that there was something even more sinister at play well yeah i mean you take alcohol and um, a natural element kind of like iron i mean that really could just be happen to be the object at hand or it could you know, maybe it does mean something to somebody Two teenagers would later come forward and say that they had left church services about 9 p.m. on Sunday night. They drove by the dirt road where the three bodies were discovered, and they had seen a 1963 Pontiac, light blue in color, parked by the road. Another witness said more cars were in the same spot around 5.45 a.m. on Monday morning when this witness was heading into work. He said there were several men standing on the road, but he didn't know any of them. Oh, so he saw a group of people. Yes. Before the bodies were found, Shipman's Fairlane turned up miles away near downtown Hendersonville. And this was on Wednesday. That was the day that he was reported missing by his father. The car had been parked in the location since Monday morning. Keys were in the car. The back seat was pulled forward. A jack was found in the trunk later, which was believed to belong to a 1961 Pontiac. Oh, interesting. Another jack was found near the floorboard. Two hubcaps were missing and the tires were muddy. Two fingerprints were found on the rearview mirror. Paul Mall butts were found in the ashtray. The car had about 259 miles on it. That's all? Well, here's the kicker. They had had an oil change on Friday the 15th, just before the murders, and they had noted the mileage. Oh, wow. So an extra 259 miles had been put on the vehicle since Friday. Oh, wow. That's an important piece of information. From Shipman's house to Lake Summit was around 40 miles. So these investigators, I'll tell you what, they're pretty damn sharp there in Hendersonville in 66, because they're, you know, they're... They're basically, you know, controlling the car is always a good find when you're looking for a missing person. And they are not playing around with the the clues and evidence left behind in this car. Now, I'm not sure how true this is, and probably investigators are not sure either. But about nine months after the fact, some teenagers claimed that they had found the car on Sunday night and took it for a joyride. And they returned it in about an hour. And that's how it ended up with all those extra miles. Oh, well, that's a pretty big joy ride. Of course, gossip spread hotly around town. Well, yeah, it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody, knows of these people. They're very, you know, um, prominent and, you know, in the... Yeah, I'm sure people are talking because it's a small town and these people are known to everybody. You know, the people that are in the record store and, uh, yeah, they're obvious 
characters missing in the town. Well, the tea was all about the gay lifestyle of the two men, drugs, wild parties, and voodoo. And there's all that. In an area where homosexuality was not discussed or in the open, everyone knew these two were gay. I mean, they didn't hide it. Glass was known to have relationships with men, some wealthy and prominent in Asheville and Hendersonville. Investigators looked into the occult connection, a possible clan involvement, and maybe a drug connection, as Glass was known to party at night in clubs in Asheville very frequently. At one point, someone had burned a cross in Charles' yard after he had entertained a black jazz singer at his house. Wow, they just got all the elements in that story. Louise didn't have any connection to the clan at all, but her co-worker said she'd often make disparaging remarks about black people and greatly disliked segregation. So she was just a racist old biddy. Uh, again, what's she doing with the cool dude who's entertaining jazz singers and stuff? She did have friends in Hendersonville, even having received her mail at the Mountain Home Post Office for a while. And... I mean, I guess it makes sense because Mountain Home is near Arden, and that's where she worked for that instrument company. So it might make sense that it was easier for her to pick up her mail there. Yeah, it could be. But others speculated that it's because she was so secretive and paranoid and didn't want anyone to know where she lived that yeah. she chose to get her mail there Wow, instead she, of at her apartment. She was like a secret agent. And she was known to, if someone followed too closely behind her, like, you know, headlights or something, she would pull over and see if they kept going. She was like a uh, paranoid, it seems, in some ways. But they could not seem to find a connection between the men and Louise. Vernon and Louise both owned 1962 Ford Fairlane cars, and relatives claimed Louise would sometimes visit a friend in Hendersonville, but was it Charles or Vernon? I mean, she was so private, they didn't know. Yeah, I don't think anybody knows her business. A witness would later claim to have seen Louise at a party at the Vanderbilt Hotel in 1965, a party attended by both Vernon and Charles. Another witness would say Louise had visited Charles in the hospital when he'd broken his leg. Co-workers said Louise would go to Hendersonville on Thursday evenings. Yeah, she must know. It seems that she may know him somehow. Another witness would state that Louise would hang out at Tempo on Thursday nights drinking wine with Charles. They sound like friends. Some of Louise's family said she might have been addicted to prescription painkillers. Oh, no. He's getting her drugs. Charles was known to have marijuana, benzedrine, and dexedrine at his parties. Now, is that like speed? Benzos or something like that? Is that that? Yeah. Okay. So some people thought that perhaps there could have been like a drug connection between the two. A source reported that Charles and Vernon would often supply drugs when they go to nightclubs in Asheville. Word was they may have been exchanging sexual favors for drugs, but again, this was a rumor. Yeah, well, yeah. They're going to say stuff like that, even if it's not true, back, especially back then. Other strange things after Louise's death. A diamond ring was given to a relative that belonged to her. Now, the initials engraved in the ring... L-D-R, caused her family to wonder if she'd been secretly married a second time. So, is that, that's not her initials? No, her, her name is Louise Davis Shoemate. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. L-D-R. She hmm. also had a bank account with $12,000 in savings, which would 
be like $90,000 today. So she's squirreling all her money back, working all the time. Who knows? But it's a lot of money for a woman who worked in retail and at a factory in 1966. Yeah, maybe she was slinging some of them benzos on the side. The fourth person in the car was never identified. He was described by witnesses as tall, thin, with light-colored hair, possibly wearing a blue suit. People speculated that the murders were ritualistic in nature. It must be like a satanic murder, the occult, because of Charles' connections to voodoo. Investigators ruled out this theory. Animal sacrifices and voodoo were typically with a slash to the throat, so the blunt force trauma was not really fitting with this theory. I bet the dumb old country guys around was like, it's one of them gay tannic murders out there, them boys. A gay tannic? I'll be like, no, I done told you, Jim, it's satanic. That's what I said. When Glass's house was searched, there were a lot of nude photos of children. But they were mostly like nudist magazines and fitness model like magazines of that time. And they featured naked children engaging in activities like hiking, camping, swimming. What the hell? There's really books like that back then? Nudist magazines? Yes. Well, in the like fitness model craze of the 50s, I mean, if you've been watching the show Hollywood on Netflix. Yeah, you made me watch some of that. Um, the agent that's played by the... Yeah, by Sheldon. That guy. Okay. Right? So he was like a real character, and I can't think of his fucking name right now, but he was like a real person. Like, he's not only a character on the show, but he's like a real person. And he was responsible for like the beefcake craze. Oh, yeah. Of like the 1950s. Um, But yeah, there were definitely like these nudist magazines, these fitness model magazines that featured males like on the beach and stuff. It was very equivalent to like the pinup cheesecake photos. Of the 40s and 50s. Okay. And a lot of the stuff, like, you had to specialty order it. Right. Just like the Betty Page photos and the foot fetish photos of that time, the boot pictures and that kind of stuff that you see when you look into, like, the old Betty Page type of posing and that stuff. So this was, like, available, but you kind of had to know where to get it. So would it be viewed as by other people as, like, uh, adult porn? Yes. Or something that's Yeah, unclassy. I mean, because they didn't really have porn back then. I mean, you would have, like, what, a 16-millimeter stag film that was really terribly made. Right. But they didn't really have porn magazines. No. Okay. So this was the equivalent of, like, owning porn. All right. Because people were just like, what the hell? Right. Because they hadn't seen anything like that. In most states in the 1960s, sodomy was criminal, so homosexuality was deemed illegal. Many people who were associates of Charles didn't want to speak to police out of fear, and that hindered the investigation. Well, yeah, you could understand in that climate. I don't blame those people from for being scared of being exposed or talked about, or you know, it could brought violence on them. It was alleged that Shipman had compromising photos in his possession, but none were ever found. Investigative reports did state that Shipman had paid young men for sex, including giving them loans. Wow, well. I don't know. If, you know, if it's two adults, you know, nothing wrong with that. 
underage teens were known to attend Charles's parties. Witnesses would later state they had attended Charles's parties as young as 14 because he had a drug connection. And drugs were pretty difficult to come by in Hendersonville during the 1960s. Even though you think of, oh, the 60s, the summer of love, the hippies. That wasn't happening in Hendersonville. Not in Western North Carolina. Like, you may have been in San Francisco and you could have found drugs on every corner, but not here. Right. Charles was known to smoke opium at his house and always have other drugs on hand. And we didn't mention this, but Charles was really into Asian culture. Yeah, like big time. Had lots of Asian art, would wear kimonos. Meditate. Was really into like Asian food. I mean, he, he loved everything about the culture. Yes, he did. So smoking opium was kind of part of that, you know, went along with his interest. Well, and, and if it tells you anything about the type of people and how the town was back then, even that his interest in Asian stuff, they see him wearing clothing and such. Or they were just like, oh my God, what's going on with that weird guy over there? I mean, even that threw them for like, oh, what, you know, they don't understand it. Well, you know what I find with small towns is you get some of that, but I almost feel like when you have that extremely, and we use the term flamboyant to describe him earlier, when you have like that one character in town who is just so over the top. Yeah. It's almost like people are just accepting of it. It's oh, yeah. not so like, oh. Uh, it's almost like people are just like, oh, well, that's just Charles. Oh, you know? Charles is crazy, I tell you. He's, he just, he's just one of a kind. They broke the mold with old Charles, I tell you. That's what I find in a small town is that there's always like those few people who are just, everybody's like, those people are weird as fuck, but nobody really gives them a hard time or, or like hassles them because they're just like the character, the yeah, staple in town. That's true, I think. Just the quirky weirdo in town that everybody's like, ah. Oh, it's almost like charming. He drives that truck with three wheels on it. I don't know how he does it. But. And that seemed to be kind of the case just from what I was reading articles, interviews with people is that was almost how people viewed Charles. Yeah, they he liked was him. was just like this well-liked character. Right. A suspect to surface was a guy named Frank Myers who allegedly had a fling with Shipman for many years. He was not an openly gay guy. As a matter of fact, he was incredibly good looking. All the girls in town liked him. And they loved to go shopping with him because he had such good taste. He seemed like one of the big, you know, the biggest eligible bachelors in town. Calvin Hunt had thought the man in the backseat of the car was Myers. But Myers' mother backed up an alibi that her son had been at Lake Norman near Charlotte on the Sunday that Vernon had gone missing. A number of IOUs were found in Shipman's paperwork at Tempo, totaling about $1,000. Charles had allegedly made a voodoo doll of Frank, and shortly after he had done this, Frank's face was disfigured in a car accident, so much so that he needed plastic surgery after. Also, he owed him money, and he took him out with a voodoo doll? Well, he owed Vernon money. Yeah. He was always and Vernon, borrowing. Vernon put the hex on no, his No, Charles put the hex oh, on him. Charles. And from what I understand, it's because Charles was jealous that Frank and Vernon had a relationship. And the dude was handsome. Yes. And his face got and so even though they seemingly were like a couple, but in some sort of open relationship, because they both were fucking other people. Yeah. Charles was jealous. Oh. So he puts a voodoo doll together. Basically hexes this guy. He ends up in a wreck, has to have plastic surgery, and Vernon had helped pay for that plastic surgery. 
Myers knew Charles had put this hex on him, and some said that Frank is the one who had broken into Vernon's house and removed those illicit photos. Ah. Though a suspect, he was never charged. Frank died after being shot in a domestic dispute in Charlotte just a few years after this murder. He cursed him. Another suspect was a man named John Shadrick. He was 28 at the time of the murders and had been paroled from state prison in 1966. On the Saturday night before the murders, he was staying at a motel in Hendersonville. In August of 1966, he was arrested for trying to rape another young man using a knife, and he made some threats during the assault. Shadrick told the victim, I have already killed three people, and I'll just as soon kill you too. My God, they need to put that dude in jail. A friend of Charles and Vernon was a man named Jim Burroughs, and he was also gay. Many consider him a suspect. At some point, Burroughs admitted to killing the trio, and he said this to the WNC Tribune editor. And if you remember, that's where Charles had his, like, advice column. Yeah. He had been a newspaper reporter, but he was an alcoholic, and he had gotten fired from the Asheville Citizen Times, like, around the time of the murders. Sometime between the 18th and 22nd of July, Burroughs told an editor that he had a news tip about a triple murder in Hendersonville. And this was like around the time he had gotten fired. And this was before anyone knew the three were dead. Oh, well, that's pretty compelling. He'd be like, newsflash, I killed three people. Three confessions came out, you know, but none proved to be true. I think people just want to insert themselves in this big case for the area? Possibly. A chiropractor named Saxman was considered a suspect because of some kind of money dispute he had had with Charles, and he had been friends with Vernon. So that is another person of interest in this case. Never charged. Now, our next suspect is pretty interesting, and we may have to have just a separate episode on this guy. Uh, just a little bit I saw. I think we can. Edward Thompson, Jr., went on a crime spree in western North Carolina and Virginia, which included rape, murder, and kidnapping. Yeah, he would sound like a very vicious man. And he, what, nine people caught up in his crime spree? He began his spree in Henderson County, and by the end of his murder spree, 11 people were kidnapped, five raped, and two dead. Damn, monster. He was given a life sentence, and he died in 1989. Many law enforcement officers believe Thompson was the killer. There were similarities between the triple murder in 1966 and the other crimes he had committed. Some similarities in the case. The men were clothed. The women were not. He left the keys and ignitions of the cars of his victims. He made people he kidnapped drive him around. Women got a more brutal treatment. He kidnapped random people, and for some reason, he committed his crimes on Sundays. Well, that's very strange. There's a TV show called Haunting Evidence that was filmed in 2007, and they brought in some psychics and mediums to solve the case. The psychic, John Oliver, who was not given any information on this case, described the killer as a black man, which shocked investigators, and we'll get to that here in a moment. The case remains unsolved. 
Shoddy investigative work, a contaminated crime scene, and lack of information was a big problem. Because the men were gay, associates were afraid to talk for fear of being outed, Louise's life was private, that complicated things. Plus, there was no solid tie to Louise and the two men. Years of investigations have brought in many suspects, tips, but nothing has ever come to fruition. Though retired police chief Bill Powers is certain that Edward Thompson is the guilty person. Though the suspect in the car was described as a white man, Thompson was a very light-skinned African-American with red hair. However, there is no way to use DNA now to tie Thompson to the crime. I mean, at this point, evidence has long been destroyed. He's dead. This case is over 50 years old. Yeah, and who knows if it was preserved in a way that, you know, to preserve the DNA. Evidence was thrown into the landfill. The only thing left from the crime scene was one of Charles's crutches. Thompson had also been accused of murder in 1947, but there were never... Basically, he was never convicted. The charges were dismissed. And some of the sources I used for today's case were the News Times... There's an eight-day series called Small Town Big Crimes. Also, news articles from the Hendersonville um, newspaper, North Carolina's Search for a Voodoo Killer by Hal White. I need to read some of that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, um, and it said uh, Vernon was still a practitioner of African folk religion. Do you mean Charles? He was the one that... No, ma'am. No, I mean Mr. Thompson. Oh, okay. Well, his name was Edward. You're going to confuse people. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Edward Thompson was also known to be a practitioner of African folk religions, like old religions from Africa. And, you know, a lot of that, which I thought was interesting, you pointed out that uh, some of that believes in what they call juju, which is like amulets and charms and such like that, like, uh, or, you know, do a little spell and get your little amulet to protect yourself. And then um, the one guy was selling some things like that out of the back of his record store. Yeah, it would sell like little mojo bags. Yeah. Those elixirs. Right. Little bags of herbs and spices and different things. Yeah, known to sell that to African, you know, black people there in town. So that was pretty, could be a possible connection there for Yeah, them. it could be. Yeah. It's a really interesting case. I first discovered this case, gosh, it's probably been 10 years ago. Really? I worked in Hendersonville. That's real, a long time to be... Real estate company. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was like after the crash, so that didn't go very well. But anywho, uh, working in Hendersonville, and I've always been interested in true crime. Some of the other people I worked with, coworkers, um, told me about this case. They were like, oh, well, if you like true crime, you should check this out. Started reading up on it, and I was fascinated. I was like, how did I never hear this story before? Yeah, it's a pretty wild story with a lot. There's a lot of parts to that story. And what's really interesting, too, Louise, her apartment is in downtown Asheville. It was on Ravenscroft. And I'm very familiar with that area, and I'm pretty sure I know where her apartment might have been. Really? Yeah. Like the building? Oh. Well, that's kind of crazy. We could do a little morbid tour, huh? Yeah, we'll get our, get our little camera rig and go out and check it out. Check out that apartment. It's probably totally different now. So this has been the triple murder, 1966 triple murder in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Yeah, I bet that's come. I bet people talk about that case till this day. Yeah, I'm sure. It's probably one of the biggest cases in that county. 
Well, yeah. I mean, just with all the different parts, the voodoo and the way the bodies were and three people and the strange connections or lack thereof. Very, very strange story. What and do you think happened? I mean, I have to go with the witness who was saying that he had seen multiple men on this road early, the early morning hours of the Monday after the guys and the gal went missing. Because you had said before, how do you control three people? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, to- uh, that totally makes more sense in my head because that's the first thing that jumps out at me. One perpetrator, three victims, um, and the one guy who had the boot and the crutches. So, uh, you know, he's a little easier to control maybe, but the other two are able-bodied, not hurt. So, yeah, it's just even for one of them to get away, even if he killed them, to be so far away he doesn't have time to arrange, you know, bring them back, drag them all the way over here and arrange the bodies. So it's like he had them in that spot, got them there, and you know nobody had a chance to get away. So it really leads me to believe that there was at least one other person, maybe two or three other people. Right, I'm trying to play it out of my mind, um, just reading the details of the case, and I'm like, okay, so the murderer, the suspect, is in the back seat with Louise, the two men are in the front seat. If this person whacked um, Vernon because he was just killed with blunt force trauma. Okay. Hit him with an object, knocked yeah. him out. Charles is probably going to be like, oh, my God, you know. And then you could quickly, they said Louise had defensive like wounds, like a broken arm and shoulder. So imagine this person reaches over, attacks her, injures her arm and shoulder, you know, gets out of the vehicle, like pulls her out pulls Charles out. She's already wounded, so she's probably not going to be able to get too far, right? Just starts beating the shit out of the both of them, stabbing them. Oh, my God. But then it makes me think if there are two people, like there could have been the one person in the vehicle and another person waiting. You just explained how you would effectively take out three people. No, I'm just explaining from the information how I pictured it going down in my head that it would like how it can make sense with like one person being the killer. Yeah. And it was a perfect plan. So you're good at this stuff. I failed the psychopath test. Okay. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I remember. I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) But it's Uh, so fascinating. I mean, we'll probably never have answers. And at this point, the case is so old. I said it had been over 50 years. I mean, it's been over what? Like yeah, I guess it has been over 50 years because this was in 66. So, yeah, it's been over 50 years since this murder occurred. At this point, your suspects are probably all dead. Suspects. Or the person who actually did it. Potential witnesses. All you got left is the case file. And, you know, there could have been some, you know, I thought the cops were doing good. Shows what I know. They actually maybe could have done better. Or just uh, all the circumstances together, you know, work like people's reluctance to talk to them. Because of the climate of, you know. Well, it seemed like they really were doing all that they could given the circumstances. Right. And they had quite a few things working against them. It seems that way. But, um, you know, that's all you got left. Most of the evidence is gone. For all I know, maybe the original, you know, bulk of the case file is gone, for all we know. I mean, unless we find someone's like handwritten statement, diary entry, or like a family member comes forward and says, hey, this person confessed on their deathbed, we likely never know like there's what no dna evidence to even link anybody or you know all these years later prove a family member or any of that so nope unfortunately sadly those people were brutally murdered and we likely will never know why
Yeah, it just seems so weird to me, too. Like, they went through all of the um, pomp and circumstance of, like, posing these people, you know, creating kind of this elaborate scene. It's a It's a pretty dramatic death. I mean, it's not like we just shot these three people and dumped them. You're no. posing them. You're placing items on their person. You're physically attacking the person with a knife. Blunt force trauma. So you've got some sort of heavy object. Then you are doing horrific things to this female. Yeah, and the wounds are described as punctures. So it almost sounds something in the neighborhood of a screwdriver or ice pick or something like that, maybe, or a very small knife, you know. It's, um, yeah, and then left like that. That takes time to do all that stuff. It does, and I mean, we're speculating. We don't know, but doesn't it seem like a person who would go to those lengths, that wouldn't be the only murder they would be involved in? I mean, that seems like the work of, like, a serial killer. Or a ring of voodoo killers that plagued Western North Carolina back then, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if that (laughs) And that's how my mind works. Okay. All right. So thank you for that. Left me with a lot of questions, but sometimes that happens, you know. And um, but it's a very interesting case. Very brutal. I think a, I think a ball bat could maybe maybe not in the car. You can't use the ball bat effectively, really. But um, that could maybe do that kind of damage to three people. You know, you get a couple of good swings in there, you can incapacitate someone pretty quickly. What about the bumper jack? That was used to assault Louise. Well, Do yeah. Do you think that could have been the weapon that could have caused that blunt force trauma? Well, yeah, certainly. Yeah, the kind of damage, that kind of damage. Yeah, sure. Plus, it's really strange that there was like another jack belonging to what they thought was a 1961 Pontiac in this car. Yeah, for, I mean, for all you know, it could have been um, the dude that owns the car. It could have been like a friend's Jack or he borrowed a Jack from his brother. You never know. Well, then those kids who had left church reported seeing a blue Pontiac, like a 1963 or so Pontiac parked on that road. Right. And it looked like the hubcaps were some hubcaps gone, the wheels all well, muddy. Well, off the Ford Fairlane they were. Yeah, it could have, could have blew some tires. Could have been some, who knows? Or it could have been the proved the presence of another vehicle. So, yeah, it's just crazy. What do you do with all that? And then now it's a lot to process. Yeah, let alone with all the rumors and stuff. Well, thanks for catching this episode of Mountain Murders. If you feel so inclined, you can hit subscribe and leave us a five-star review. That helps us out a lot. Yes, it does. It keeps us um, um, on the charts and stuff so people can keep discovering us. And you can help with that. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. Get Get a gun and hold it on somebody and be like, you need to download Mount Murders. Dylan, don't, no. Wait, no, don't do that because then what the gun goes off and then we're doing a story about you. Okay, it's late and obviously I need to tuck Dylan in because he's delirious. But thank you guys for tuning in. You can find us pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and now we're on TikTok. And you can leave us a voicemail, y'all. Yeah, again, what was that number, Dylan? It was 828-571-0092. Call us. We want to hear from you. Thanks, guys.